podcast is to discuss meaningful topics and issues from the lens of two Khmerican sisters and other diverse community leaders. Today's topic is Life After Law, Reconnecting with My Roots with Khmazi, Khmer Australian, Penny Lee. Since Penny is video calling from Cambodia, you might hear some light static sounds. So if you prefer, listeners, you are welcome to watch the video interview on YouTube with subtitles. Welcome back to our podcast. We are your two Khmerican sisters, Jasmine and Melissa. On our show, we typically invite people of color leaders who have a unique story to share. And today, we are super excited to introduce to you Penny Lee, who is our first Cambodian Australian to be on our podcast. Before we have her say hello to all of you, let me give you a brief background on who she is. So Penny's family fled the Khmer Rouge regime in 1980 and settled in Sydney, Australia. She was a corporate lawyer and lived in Hong Kong for six years. And after two transformational visits to Cambodian Children's Fund, also known as CCF, in late 2019, she left Hong Kong and relocated to Phnom Penh, Cambodia in early 2020 to volunteer with CCF. She then joined the CCF Hong Kong board in March 2020 as its first Cambodian Khmer Australian woman. Penny is also the president of the Cambodian Society. And in her spare time, she loves writing fun poetry and creative song lyric adaptations. Welcome to our show, Penny. So lovely to meet a Kamazi Penny. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Thank you so much. How are okay, you today? So I am very good. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been uh, incredible to also listen to your podcast and now to be featured as a guest. I'm really honored. And it's Kamazi, uh, Khmer Australian. It's a term that I, uh, it's a phrase that I coined because we see a lot of Cambodians with different backgrounds come through and obviously you both being American, uh, I thought I would turn the phrase Kamazi, so you yeah. know exactly that. There's, we there's a lot it. of us out there. I love it, it's so creative. <laughs> <laughs> and Penny, it's so great to finally meet you. I know it's been a while, but we really appreciate mm -hmm. your support being you know, a, a loyal listener, but also submitting your feature on our website. Thank you, Esther. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Thank and you so much. We read through your feature story and your article on CCF, and it's quite impressive that you practice law for most of your career. And I want to congratulate you on your achievements so far in life. And I think it's truly impressive on where it has led you to where you're at today. So will you please share what your career journey has been like with our listeners? Thank you so much for the kind words. And yes, for most of my corporate career, I have been a corporate lawyer. I studied at university in Australia, in Sydney. I graduated from a combined business and law degree. And I started as a graduate actually at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which you may know is one of the largest accounting firms. And my background actually, I worked as a, as a tax consultant. So I wasn't even a lawyer. I was basically a graduate working for about a year and a half doing corporate tax returns. And 
I really couldn't stand it anymore. It was just so, it was so boring. And I'm actually a person who likes tap. At the time when I had, when I decided I wanted to leave, I had already qualified as a lawyer. And in Australia, the path to being a lawyer or an attorney, as you call it, is a lot shorter than in the States. So I decided to move to a medium-sized law firm and begin my career as a corporate lawyer. And I really wanted to know more about uh, corporate transactions, so mergers and acquisitions. And it, it is a little bit similar to what you see on suits. It's not quite as sexy, uh, but it is all about um, fast-paced transactions and negotiating with the other side. And effectively, it just means you buy and sell businesses. When I was at PwC, I met my boyfriend at the time. Eventually, I wanted to move to Hong Kong, uh, and I wanted to set myself up by working at an international law firm. So I ended up moving to King and Wood Mallison's. It's a large, it's one of Australia's largest law firms. And I worked there for a couple of years, always as a corporate M&A lawyer. I mean, I worked on some of Australia's largest profile transactions and initial public offerings or IPOs and helping companies to raise capital from the stock market. So they're called capital raisings. And I, I worked really hard. I remember even sometimes sleeping in the office. Wow. Uh, and and, and that's, it's not something that I'm proud of, but I think at the time you're just driven by adrenaline and you need to get a deal done. So it was my life. I would regularly work, you know, 16 to 18 hours a day. And, and that life that people talk about as, you know, for example, an investment banker or a corporate M&A lawyer, we have to match their hours. So I was not sleeping a lot and I was working hard, but I was really driven by the work. So, so I really enjoyed it. And so I kept sort of rising through the ranks and, you know, working in a corporate environment and thriving where I was quite successful, I was promoted. Uh, and eventually the law firm sent me to China to the Beijing office. That was the last stepping stone for me because I really wanted to move to the Hong Kong office. So I tried to get them to transfer me there. And at the end of 2013, I come back to Sydney and I say, can you please send me to Hong Kong now? Uh, and they say, no, there's no room for you in the Hong Kong office. So I decided to leave Australia and move to Hong Kong. And that decision for me was really, I did it out of love. I wanted to be with my with my boyfriend at the time and we had done long distance for four years and by that time we'd been together for seven years so something had to give and I decided that I would move to Hong Kong and in the end after a period of time the Hong Kong office decided that there would be a role for me and I was able to to work for them and uh, I really enjoyed working in the Hong Kong office this time on Hong Kong transactions and Hong Kong stock exchange initial public offerings, so companies wanting to list on the stock exchange, um, private uh, would do M&A transactions as well. So it actually wasn't as crazy as you would think. I worked longer hours in Sydney than I did in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is notorious for almost keeping like New York hours and really work hard, play hard. And I definitely did that, but probably I wasn't sleeping in the office, for example. In, in that time, I mean, by that stage, I probably worked in private practice, we call it, in a law firm for 11 years. The time sort of comes for me to decide what I want to do. And I really always wanted to be partner at a law firm, you know, representing uh, females and being an ethnic minority. Along the way, something changed in me. I just 
couldn't deal with the corporate culture anymore. So I was tapped on the shoulder and I was asked by an Australian bank. So Commonwealth Bank of Australia is Australia's largest retail bank and they had a presence in Hong Kong. They asked me to join their legal team to do the bank's own M&A transaction. So whatever the bank owned outside of Australia and New Zealand, they asked me to help out from a legal perspective to run the team. So I ended up working for them and that move. So when you move from private practice or from a law firm to what's called in-house counsel, you effectively turn your back on a career or on the path of being a partner at a law firm. And so that was a really big decision for me to decide that I was not going to pursue that path and I wanted to become in-house counsel. And when you take the path going in-house, the highest position you can get to is effectively what's called a general counsel. And so you are the number one lawyer in, in the organization and you become the client. So you are the one who interacts with law firms. And, and so I became the client. So that was quite interesting for me. I, I worked at this, at this bank uh, effectively for two and a half years. And, and for me, it was a ticket home to Australia too, I thought. I'm working for an Australian bank. If I want to go home, maybe I can, I can go home. But actually what happened is I'm there for a year. And then the bank tells me we're going to shut down the entire office. And you have one and a half years notice. And everyone is going to lose your job, lose their jobs. So there I am thinking, okay, I've got a year and a half, I'm going to lose my job. But then they also asked me to take on the role as the head of the team. So not only am I losing my job, I'm meant to be the head of the team and I become a functional manager as well. So I'm one of six functional heads. I'm there to help shut down the business. And that means appoint a voluntary liquidator, turn off the lights, get rid of all the equipment and the, uh, the computers, what's happening with our books and records. And it's a pretty scary task. And I'm the youngest uh, management team member of the six. And I've now got four lawyers reporting to me. For me, knowing that I was going to lose my job, a lot of people would probably be quite um, scared about that circumstance. You also have to remember that in Hong Kong at the time, the protest situation was really starting to ramp up. So personal safety was becoming a real issue. So things were just starting to get a bit crazy. Um, and I decided to stay and see it through to the end. And I was told that I would lose my job on the 1st of December, 2019. So sometimes when you have a, a lot of notice, knowing you're gonna lose your job, it, 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 it can be a blessing and a curse in disguise because you know the end is coming, but you also have a lot of time to prepare. Or so you think, but when I'm still doing the bank's transactions and I'm still trying to work out how do I shut down this business, I really didn't have a lot of extra time to think. So that's the corporate part of it. And, and so I want to sort of just tell you more about how Cambodia and then my career merged. So I'm in Hong Kong and it wasn't until my fifth year uh, that I realized I'm not the only Cambodian living and working in Hong Kong. And that was a surprise to me. So there it's January 2019. I've got a year to go before I lose my job. And all of a sudden, I meet this group in Hong Kong. It's called the, uh, the Cambodian Society. And it's basically a group of predominantly Cambodian French who are living and working in Hong Kong, and they've all come together. And it's just a nice sort of society where 
we spread awareness and enjoy things about Cambodia. And I attend a networking drinks event in June 2019. So I've got now less than six months to go before I finish up. And at this event, I meet the development director of Cambodian Children's Fund. She, I meet her for about five minutes. Her name is Sangeeta, and she's just this beautiful, bubbly person. And she asked me, have you heard of CCF before? And I say, no. I'm Cambodian. I haven't even heard of Cambodian Children's Fund. And then she said, do you know Scott Neeson? And Scott Neeson is the founder of CCF, and he's also a fellow Australian. So she says, we need to come to Cambodia and come with me, and I'll show you. So in August 2019, right, a couple months before we shut down, I go for a weekend with St. Peter to CCF. That is the first transformational visit for me. And I'd been to Cambodia before, but never in this capacity. And I go into a really poor community. It's called Stormia J, and it's uh, near the old rubbish dump in Phnom Penh. And it's just still squalid because no one has removed the rubbish. Uh, and these children are living and thriving and going to school in this area. And I see the incredible work, work and impact that CCF is having in the community. So the first seed is planted in August for me to decide, okay, I'm going to lose my job. So I may as well just go to Cambodia and, and see what it's like and help out. So I end up being asked out of nowhere by CCF to be an MC for their annual charity gala dinner. Wow. In Hong Kong, it's the huge fundraising event. We have these big balls and they fundraise every year and bring in a lot of our donations. So there I am in November <laughs> in front of 350 people for three hours trying to help carry this event. Was that your first time emceeing? Yes. <laughs> wow. It was the first time ever emceeing. And it's the first time I ever meet Scott Neeson, November. And Scott says to me, you need to come back to Cambodia. I want to take you on a community walk with me to see the children. And you should come at the end of November. So I think, okay, but well, I have to finish on the 1st of December and I'm responsible for four people and I need to shut down the business. But I also decide this is for me. I don't have a future at this bank anymore, so I'm going to finish early. And I get on a plane again in November and I go for my second transformational visit. And I go and meet Scott and I do the community walk and I see these children who literally look like us. And, and the story, their stories, is, it's just too close to home for me because had our families not left Cambodia, this could have been us, mm -hmm. our sisters, cousins, whatever. So I decide that I'm going to move here. And that was on only a weekend trip as well. So two weekend trips. I go back to Hong Kong and I just pack up my stuff. So I've been made redundant now. First of December uh, goes by. I pack up one suitcase, that's it. I put everything else into storage. I go to Sydney first because my mom's freaking out and I tell her I'm moving to Cambodia. Bear in mind, I have no family who live there anymore. Okay. And in February, 2020, just before COVID, I moved to Phnom Penh wow. and I decided to really just, you know, change my life. I quit law and I decided that for the next year, I'm going to give back. And I've never volunteered before, but I decided to volunteer full-time with Cambodian Children's Fund on the ground here. And my life just starts to change. It's crazy. Uh, I was appointed as yeah, the first Cambodian to the board of directors of CCF Hong Kong. I start learning Khmer because actually before then, I could not speak a word of Khmer. And 
whilst I'm sitting on the board of CCR, because I'm the only board member probably who's ever decided to dedicate a full year, my role is quite interesting. I liaise with every other board member around the world. And there are boards in the US, in the UK, in Australia and Hong Kong. And I help them to develop best corporate governance practice for an NGO. Even though I come from corporate, my, my background and my skill set is in advising boards on corporate governance. So I, I really do almost like consulting project to try to lift the, the, the boards and try to help them with fundraising and being clear about their roles and responsibilities. Uh, and so that's the transition and, and sort of the move for me to, and, and so to this, to today, I mean, I finished volunteering at the end of 2020, but to date, um, I still am not working as a lawyer and I am really happy about that. I'm not saying I, I still love law, but Cambodia has really changed my life. And I was someone who always had this path of being a partner in a law firm. And now I, you know, I'm here in Cambodia and I've been giving back and, and I'm doing something completely different, but really reconnecting with my roots. And that's incredible for me. Wow. Penny, thank you for sharing. And I always say things happen for a reason and mm -hmm. it just seemed like everything aligned for you perfectly. You know, even though you had to leave, you know, your former position a month early, everything kind of just like fell into place. And I feel like you excel in whatever you do. And it seemed like you had a pretty successful career. Like you moved up the ranks, you got promoted. And that is like a huge accomplishment in itself. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, it is a, a blessing in disguise and things like change in your life, like uh, your perspectives when you see things for yourself. I also had the opportunity to visit Sok Mai uh, a couple times. And the first time it was through the School of Social Work. So I went to to visit many NGOs there and saw the issue, the current issues that are happening and like landlessness and um, children living in poverty. It's really sad to see. And I'm really glad that it impacted you. And now you're you're doing so much good for people in Cambodia. But yeah, you're right. Like corporate life sometimes has its cons and you just seem so, so much happier because yeah. working a lot of hours um, is not good for your health. It's not sustainable. Not sustainable. Yeah. And I can't believe you were sleeping in the office too. Oh my goodness. You know, when you're in it, you don't realize how hard, how difficult you're making your life. But I really thrived. I really liked the adrenaline. I really thrived on being busy. And I, it may on the surface seem like I was achieving and I was, I was succeeding, but it's difficult really working in an environment and in a profession where at the top it is completely dominated uh, by, you know, male Caucasians uh, who are from a predominantly white background. And, and it was never lost on me because I really felt like I needed to prove myself and I needed to work even harder than everyone. And, and I think you can probably relate to a little bit of this too, Melissa. It's, it's hard, but it's something that we're born with. So we just do it. We don't realize until we maybe take a minute to think about the experiences that we've had and that people generally stereotype us. They, they it, you know, it may not, and sometimes it's not apparent to them, but it's very apparent to me that there is this young female Asian ethnic minority who I'm, and I'm a little bit outspoken because I, I've been brought up that way. 
but but generally that's also against a certain stereotype of someone who they could predominantly would think maybe shouldn't have a right to say what they say with not enough experience and also being female so you know it was it was tough and i did enjoy what i did i i really did and, I, and the thing is i still do it's just that i realized that i like what i'm doing now even more <laughs> That's great, though. But in what with what you shared, even though we come from different countries, I relate so much to your stories, because I am that way too. like, I think as Cambodians, we have a really strong work ethic. And like when you shared that you worked like, you know, 50 to 60 or even more like hours per week, like I did the same thing. And I didn't at that time, like I didn't see anything wrong with it because I was really motivated to to keep going and to move up the ranks and but you know there's always like different paths that you can take and a path that is more fulfilling and I'm really glad that you're living that life now and we look forward to hearing more. Thank you. And thanks for teaching me about CCF and because you shared about it in your features and I just wanted to, to do a little research on you before <laughs> That's such an amazing organization. They do so much. Like they, they run schools, they give um, support for basic needs. I love the granny program where the youth can learn from the grandmas and the elders in the community. I love that. So there's just so much going on and we definitely will think about how we can support and give back because with the amazing work that you're doing, that the organization's doing, you need a lot of support behind that. And, and what touched me was when I read the article that you wrote about how the young three-year-old girl took your hand. Could you tell a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so that was the first transformational visit. And <clears throat> I see this little girl coming out because CCF obviously provides education and schooling, but you need to be obviously of a certain age. And so the, for, the, for the young ones who are too young to go into school, they stay in an area or sort of almost like a preschool. Uh, and we were walking by in the community and I mean, this girl just, just came out of nowhere. And I was by myself and she, she came out and she just didn't say anything and just looked up at me with this incredible trust in her eyes. Maybe it was because she, maybe she knew or recognized that I looked very similar to to, to a Cambodian woman or to a, a mother figure. But she just grabbed my hand. She she didn't say anything and she was just content holding, you know, just holding my hand. And, you know, I really tried hard not to cry um, because when Scott did tell me the story about how basically she's the only, her, she's got a sister who's five, she's three, and they're the only two surviving members of their family and their family, um, uh, the, you know, uh, experienced some pretty, um, traumatic circumstances to only now have the two girls remaining in the family. Uh, when he told me that story, it was just, it was almost too much to bear. And yet here is this most resilient child who trusts me when she shouldn't trust anybody. And, and she looks, as I said, like someone in our family and she just comes and holds my hand and she walks around with me for about 10 minutes around the community. She doesn't even care that she's left the, the preschool or, or uh, the care that she's in. Uh, and I just feel incredibly touched. And for me, it was, her story is just too hard. 
And it's unfortunate that there are so many stories in this community that are the same. And it shouldn't be that way, but unfortunately it is. So yeah. what we can do is really try to help them um, from this point on. So for me, that was why I was so touched by what CCF was doing, um, because they weren't just, there are a lot of education NGOs, but CCF really tries to alleviate the poverty cycle by not just educating, but part of it, yes, is the granny program and the community. And, and so that's why I decided that I just needed to come back and help and, and see this through. Thanks for sharing that story. And I'm so happy that you've found a way that you can give back and also reconnect with your Khmer roots. So it's like a full circle for you. And over the years, we've learned that the Khmer diaspora exists in not only the United States, but in France, Australia, New Zealand, in many other countries. And we actually have some family in Australia. So maybe our families are connected in some way. And we love the fact that you have a different upbringing than most Khmer's we know. And we're interested to know how was it like being born and growing up in Australia? Um, what was it like growing up with your family? Um, we want to know, know a little bit more about your stories. My story is, is probably a lot different to a lot of Khmer families. But it, so it begins with my mum, as, as you mentioned at the very start, fleeing the Khmer Rouge regime in 1980 and settling in Australia as a refugee. And my mum uh, had two children at the time, and she, uh, my oldest brother and older sister, and she lost her first husband during the regime. Uh, my biological father, I actually never met. Uh, and so my mum ended up remarrying and had two children with him. And so there are four siblings, four kids in the family, and I am the youngest. Uh, and so two obviously were born in Cambodia, the oldest two, and I had another sibling, another brother and me, and we were both born and raised in Australia. And it, I mean, it was really, it was really tough growing up in my family. And it was tough growing up in Australia. And that's coming from someone who was born and raised there. And part of the way, the reason why I think my story is a little bit different is generally with the Khmer community, you have two Khmer parents. But I didn't know my biological father, who is Khmer, but my mum remarried. And so I have I had a stepfather who was actually European. And so you automatically take away half of the Cambodian the Khmer influence. Mm -hmm. and, and I grew up originally in an area in Sydney, which is close to a suburb called Cabramatta. And if you know anything about Australia and Sydney in particular, Cabramatta is the area in Sydney where a lot of the Khmer community, actually Southeast Asian refugees in general, ended up settling in this community. Uh, I grew up there originally, but I didn't stay for long. And it, it, has, a great, uh, it has a great mix of Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian, Chinese in the community. And I, I guess I took that for granted because I was used to seeing a lot of Asians growing up. But when I started high school, so all your junior high school, I was taken away. Or I, we moved away from that area, probably two hours away. And I grew, grew up then in an area called the Blue Mountains. And it is two hours from the city center. And there are no Asians or hardly very few Asians living there, especially when I was living there. And I ended up having to go to school in that area as well. So I was removed from the Cambodian community and 
I had a stepfather who was European who ruled the family home in a very European style. So I didn't have any real connection to Cambodia. And when you add to the fact that I was actually ashamed of being Cambodian, because I was born and raised in Australia and I didn't have anything tying me to Cambodia. So I just wanted to be Australian. And you, you might appreciate that growing up, the last thing we want to do is stand out. And I was very aware that I had black hair and I was Asian and I lived in a, a neighborhood that literally didn't have any Asians. Um, so I just wanted to be Australian. I never wanted to speak Khmer and I didn't. I didn't want to learn and my mum did not force me. So being ashamed of being Cambodian then, I didn't know anything about the Khmer Rouge regime. I didn't speak Khmer. I didn't like Cambodian food. And I generally didn't have any, I had no Cambodian community, but what I did have throughout this all, I started high school in, in near that Cabernet area and I didn't even make it past the first year. But I met some friends who are Cambodian Bilchu by background and Laotian. And I have a core group of three or four friends who are my friends to this day. And they are the ones who helped keep me grounded. No matter how far away I was from that community, I still managed to keep in touch with them. And this was way before we had, we had computers. So you had to use pay phones and you had to hope that your friends turned up at that time. But to coordinate that was hard because I lived so far away. So my, my background was tough. My, my stepfather in particular was, he was not a nice person. Um, he was, he was yeah, um, he was he was awful, mm. uh, and he really treated the four of us, us as kids as um, almost like um, child laborers. Mm. Uh, and and I grew up in in an environment where I basically lived in fear my whole life. So I wanted to share a story. When I was probably uh, can't remember how old, but maybe just in high school, early years of high school. Uh, living in this area in the Blue Mountains. I came home from school one day with my brother and I walked in and on the kitchen table uh, were two plates with a piece of toast on each piece of, on each plate uh, covered in peanut butter. And that in and of itself might not seem like much, but that was actually the piece of toast that my brother and I had both thrown out in the bin that very morning because we didn't want to eat it. We basically had always had to eat multi-grain bread every morning with peanut butter. And so my stepfather had left the house early to go to work and we couldn't finish it, so we threw it in the bin. So he must have come home early, thrown something in and seen these pieces of toast in the bin. And he took those pieces of toast out and he wanted us to eat them. He expected what? us to eat them. Oh my gosh. So, I was very lucky because my brother waited until my stepfather probably went to the bathroom mm -hmm. and my brother quickly toasted fresh toast mm -hmm. and put peanut butter on it. We threw the old toast out and, and, and we ate the, the fresh toast. So that is just one example of the environment in which I grew up. And I would say that I really didn't have a childhood. I had to grow up very fast. And also part of the reason why I became a lawyer was because I wanted to be as financially independent 
yeah. as fast and as soon as possible. So I didn't have to live in that house anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was tough. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that powerful, almost like traumatizing part of your childhood. I'm sorry that you had to experience that as a kid. And it sounds like your siblings had to take care of you too to help you through that time. And yeah, I'm wondering when when you told your mom that you would go to Cambodia, did she want you to stay? Like what, what were her feelings about that? I think my mom was just so scared and also surprised because as the youngest in the family with seemingly zero connection to Cambodia, why is it that all of a sudden I have decided, why have I been drawn to Cambodia? A lot of Cambodians actually try to leave Cambodia. They, they want to make a better life overseas. So it didn't make sense to her also coming and having lived through the regime. She couldn't understand why I wanted to go back. Uh, but I said to her, I, you know, I really, if I don't come back and if we don't come back, then what future and what hope do these people have? We have the benefit of education and it's something that clearly is now calling me. So, so, so my mum actually has the, had the fear of what any mum would have with a child and that is they just want them to be safe and happy. But my mum also knows that through everything that I have been through, I have always been the one to step out of my comfort zone and to just go. So it was just her initial fear. And I said to my mom, you know, I'll be okay. I've moved countries before and uh, I'll keep an open mind and I will not be naive and I'll be safe. So don't worry about me, you know. Uh, So, you know, my mom started crying. She was, uh, and I just calmed her down. I said, you know, I'll be okay. I said, I've been okay up until this point. And I said, and you know that, Mama, basically lived a very independent life uh, for as long as I can remember. So, so if there's anyone who's going to be able to do this, it will be me, Mom. Uh, and she, she did, she did take comfort from that. So, so you're such a strong and independent woman. That's really <laughs> inspiring. And I just want to thank you for opening up about your life because it's not easy bringing up, you know, the stories and the the hardships that you went through. Um, and I can't imagine like what it was like growing up in an environment that was not loving. Um, but it really, it seems like it has shaped you, you know, into who you are today. Um, and we think it's just so brave of you to move to Surak Mai on your own. Like I have never even left my own state, (laughs) 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 let alone a country. Um, what would your advice be on, you know, having the courage to take risks and going outside your comfort zone? Well, I think I've always been a person who takes risks and, and goes out of my comfort zone, but there have always been almost calculated risks, right? So if, you look, if I look back at my life, and I mean, a lot has happened in my life so far. I moved countries for love, and I'm not a person who generally would have thought that I would do that being so independent. Um, and, you know, that was scary uh, because I didn't want to rely on my boyfriend I didn't have a job to go to, and I didn't know anyone in Hong Kong either. Uh, Then, you know, I I left private practice. And I remember I said I always wanted to be a partner at a law firm. So turning my back on that career path was a big move for me. Uh, I stayed even though I knew I was going to be redundant. and I had a year and a half of notice. So 
a lot of people would, the natural thing is to find another job and not wait to, to the last day. But I have a great sense of responsibility and I didn't want to let my team down as well. They had uh, had a lot of changes in management before me. So I really thought I should see this through. And then I moved to Cambodia, right? I hadn't really hadn't been there before or lived there before. I didn't know anyone, no family here. I quit working as a lawyer and that meant I had zero income. And to this day, I still have zero income. Um, I, was a, I became a volunteer and I've never volunteered before. I've always been someone who's driven by a corporate career uh, and too busy. Uh, and then I decided to learn Khmer. And it's not something that I've ever learned before. And it is the hardest language that I've ever had to learn. So my life is basically full of just getting out there and doing it. So a couple of things in terms of the advice is that I always ask myself, the first thing I ask myself is, honestly, what is the worst that can happen? And if you look at all of the decisions that I made and the, and the crossroads, I mean, yes, I could have broken up. I might break up with my boyfriend, but the thing is, I'd be devastated, but I wouldn't die. I, I, I might have to move back to Australia if things, fell, if, things, if things fall apart, or I might have to move back to Hong Kong, so be it, right? Um, I might have to get a new job outside of law. And for a long time, that was quite scary for me as well, also moving to Hong Kong if I couldn't find a job. And, and so I guess after everything that I've been through and also after everything that we as Khmer's have been through, we are resilient by nature and we are survivors. So actually, when you think about the worst that can happen, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it can't be anywhere near as bad as what our families have been through. So it really puts things into perspective for me. And then the second thing I would say is to trust your gut or your intuition. And Melissa, you talked about this before. My life just really started to open up. A path was opening up for me. And the way that I was able to follow it was there. There was never a point where I felt an overwhelming sense of dread or debilitating fear. And that doesn't mean I wasn't nervous or I wasn't scared in terms of the uncertainty of things, but I never felt like this is, this is terrible. I, this is so awful that I can't move or I can't, I can't act. And that's how I knew that the path was the right one for me. So when you're able to just let the path unfold and trust, it is really amazing what can happen. And I think my life, I mean, particularly my last year has been a shining example of when you just trust your gut things will unfold in the way that they should. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that everyone has to do what I did. There is, you know, every decision that you make in your life is big and it's important. And I'm not trying to underplay that in any way, shape or form. Even if you decide you want to move house or you want to change jobs or change careers, that, they're huge decisions. And a lot of people get stuck because they think that they're the end of the world decisions. They're not really, but it may seem like that. So I would say that to, to people who are thinking a lot about it, just to trust your gut and to trust your intuition. And then that leads to the third point, which feeds into trusting your gut. And that is don't think too much. Don't overthink. Because when we think so much, we get decision fatigue. And then we don't make a decision or we make a decision that's purely based on a list of pros and cons. And I have to say that my entire life since deciding to come to Cambodia and all the steps before that was not about any pros or cons. I had no lists. 
I just went with it. So those three things would be my advice. You know, ask yourself what's the worst that can happen. Trust your gut or your intuition. And don't overthink. Great advice. <laughs> And I was so amazed you did that before or during the pandemic. I was so surprised to read that you started a new life in a new country, didn't know the language. Your story is incredibly um, inspiring. You're such a strong and resilient person. And next month is actually Women Empowerment Month. And we're excited to promote you because um, everything that you're sharing, I think it'll definitely uplift the women out there that are listening. Thank you so much. Yeah. Penny, we're curious to know what has it been like adjusting to your new life in Cambodia? Yeah. And like, <laughs> have you picked up the Khmer language? Have you experienced any initial culture shocks? Yeah, so, okay, I've been here for a year now. And the year has gone by so fast and also yet so slow because of COVID. So I would say that I'm really enjoying Cambodia and I'm not looking to leave anytime soon. I mean, Cambodia is home for me and something happens to you when you come back to this place it's as if you know you've come home and there's no other way to explain it other than when I was on that plane and I landed in Cambodia I was like wow this is where I need to be uh, I arrived as, as you said just before COVID and I really didn't know anyone here and I had to say that it was a really difficult time for me because moving to a new country and then not even being able to get out and to socialize or to find your bearing. I couldn't, I didn't know where the supermarket was. <laughs> and I was kind of a bit too scared to leave my house because I also didn't know were other people sanitizing their hands and yeah, wearing masks. That's true. What that's was the situation? Pressure. Right? <laughs> and then I didn't even know where to go because in Cambodia, you can't go to one single store and buy what you need. Mm. You have to go to the market and then you have to go to this store and that store. That was a nightmare. <laughs> How do you even find friends in this environment? Uh, who's going to, you know, socialize with you? Not that you can really socialize. And then I needed to find an apartment. I needed to find a place that was sort of close-ish to, to CCR. I did a lot of self-isolation in the beginning. So I feel like that was a pretty lonely time for me. And I also really missed my family. And I missed my support network because I built a huge one up in Sydney. And then six years I lived in Hong Kong. And then I just got to Cambodia, so it was it was tough. Uh, and I had to say, I have to say that it actually was really then satisfying that I decided to learn Khmer because I had to do it online. And I have this fantastic school here, which does only their classes online. Oh, okay. And I went from being someone who, as a embarrassingly, right, as a Khmer heritage speaker, not being able to speak Khmer. But we hear it, so we have an ear for it. Mm -hmm. um, but my mouth, my mouth does not pronounce <laughs> the words in the way that it's meant to. So I started learning, and I would just make the funniest mistakes. So I would try to say, you know, Kyung, I wanted to say I am a student, right? So Kyung Jia Sup, Kyung Jia Sup. Instead, I said Kyung Jia Se, which is I am a horse. I kept <laughs> saying that proudly in class, and the teacher's like, okay, you need to, and I'm like, oh gosh, it sounds good, you know, the sound is so similar. So picking up Khmer was actually quite interesting. It, as I said, it's the hardest language I've ever had to learn, and I've learned Mandarin, and also it's the longest alphabet in the world, and I think 72 characters, and it's just satisfying now because for the first time ever, 
I'm able to have a conversation with my mom entirely in Khmer. Wow, that's impressive. Congratulations. Yeah, but it, thank you. It brings such a different level of depth of conversation because when mom speaks, she doesn't have to try to translate and lose the meaning in English. My mom is actually fluent in English. But when she speaks in Khmer, all of a sudden, because I'm learning the history of the words and how it fits together and the sentence structure, and, and I'm like, wow, that meaning is, doesn't have an uh, immediately transferable meaning in, in English. So I had different conversations with my mom. And the best thing for me was being able to speak to my auntie who can't speak any Khmer. And she now lives in Melbourne in, in Australia. And I had waited, it took me nine months until I could finally have a 20 minute conversation with her all in Khmer and I couldn't believe it. That was so impressive. Wait, and, ask, you know, do you, did you understand Khmer before? I think I understood it generally, but there were a lot of words where I didn't know the exact meaning. So you mm, can pick okay. up the general gist of the conversation, right. but not exactly the nuance of that, of that word. Uh, and so it really took my understanding to another level. And my understanding is a lot better than my speaking, but it's been nearly a year now and I have been studying hard. I mean, I do Khmer class two days a week. Mm. I do anywhere between six to eight hours of Khmer class a week. And the best part is I'm the one in class, I'm the clown who always makes jokes in Khmer. But the <laughs> teacher, you know, so, 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 you know, we, you know, the teacher will say, tiny, young, real, upsaw. So today we're going to learn about the alphabet. And then because she says upsaw, which I always say, oh, mean um, because that saw is like the color white yeah. saw. Yeah. And then, and then, I, and then oh. she's, 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 and then like, mean akmao there. And then she says, Naku says, uh, these things they may never have thought about before you, you point out because it's so clear to you that there are similarities yeah. it's like why is the color purple wasp 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 why it shouldn't be the color of a mango mango is not purple you know? and so I, I asked them this question and then they like don't make a lane and he wants to make fun all the time and I say yeah I mean that's just that's just me you know yeah. so um and I guess you know in terms of the culture shock so I think yes and no uh 
I think what you were saying before um, about the level of poverty here, especially when you when you came from Nusa, is it's not like anything you will ever see ever in a developed country. And on many levels, it's so confronting and overwhelming. And yet, because somehow in our blood, that level of resilience and the fact that we probably all grew up, and I know I definitely did growing up with not a lot, means that you can appreciate when people have to be resourceful and you know exactly what it's like to live in survivor mode. So when you see this level of poverty, it strikes you to the core because you know it, it's not right. But at the same time, it also doesn't shock you enough to be like, this is so far removed from what I think poverty really is. So as I said, it really brought a lot of perspective because just so there's just so much poverty here. And with COVID in particular, we've got some families that I see in the community. They used to earn $5 US a day and that was in, a, in good times, still scavenging off the rubbish heap, even though it's decommissioned, trying to sell recyclables and plastics to Vietnam. And now that the Vietnamese border has been closed because of COVID, if we're lucky, they could earn $2 US a day. And that's to feed an entire family. And actually food is, is cheap, but not that cheap in Cambodia. Uh, and so when I see that, I mean, that really, it really hurts. And, and when you see that every, a lot of people just lack the education that we have the benefit of, it means that that poverty cycle is one that is so hard to break. Uh, so I see that. And then on the other hand, I see a lot of my people who are just simple and they're happy and they are grateful and they are generous with what little they have and they smile and they laugh like me and that gives me hope so when i talk about i guess culture shock it's it's yes and no because there's so many things about Cambodia that you know are just deep-seated problems but then there are also real pockets of sunshine here as well which which i love um and the one last thing that i do have to mention i mean i hate rats and Cambodia has the biggest rats that I have ever seen. I mean, they are fat and they are disgusting. And they are so scary. Okay, they they honestly, they're fat rats too because they scavenge up the food scraps in the street. Uh. So it's almost like the rats sit there and even if you walk by, they don't really run fast or they don't run away. Oh. It's like they sit there and they're like, you know, hey, we need to coexist here. Oh my God. I'm, I'm, I'm a rat and I'm oh getting God. fat here. And, and I see them and, I, and they're huge, they're like this big. And I'm showing my hands, I mean, they, they just, oh they're just about a foot, a foot long. And I just, ah, it's just disgusting. I can't, I can't stand them, you know? And, and, and the thing and the difference is you can tell a lot about a country by looking at its rats. So in Hong Kong, the rats are always in the darkness, in the alleyways, and they are the fastest things ever. But they're skinny, they're really skinny. And they're like sneaky and they're sly. So I used to see them out at night in Hong Kong and they just like scuffle by and, and, and they don't, you know, they don't have the same attitude as the ones in Cambodia. Yeah. So, so, so I can tell a lot about a country from its rats. And I have to say that <laughs> my rats, they're happy because they're eating all the food scraps uh, and they're just too fat to run fast. So, <laughs> so that's definitely been uh, an interesting observation for me. I hate them. Uh, and, You're analyzing uh, the attitudes of rats. <laughs>
<laughs> you know what? Oh my God. The same problem is in New York City. Yeah. There's Must rats everywhere. That, that. Like yeah. The underground station. Yeah, they're scavenging food. Yeah, when I when I visited um, Sorkmai, I remembered visiting those dump sites. And I was so young at that time, like I didn't really understand what was going on, but I just remembered being deeply impacted by seeing how people were living. Like there were people living on top of the garbage mm. and it smelled so bad. And when I got home, my clothes, my shoes, everything, like it just didn't go away even though I've washed it several times. And that made me so sad to see people living to that level, right? And they don't have the opportunities like we do to, you know, have a better ed- education, have a job so that we can choose from. Like we get to, we have the freedom to choose what we want to do. And I think all of us Cambodians, like in our generation, like this is now a time for us to unite and to give back, you know, to our communities because that could have been us, like if we had been born in Cambodia. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really thank you for bringing up that point because I think that's important for us to share with our community. It doesn't matter what you're bringing. It doesn't matter that you haven't, you, you might have some view in mind of what, well, how can I help? What can I do? But for me, it's we all contribute in our own ways. And the story for me is that it really is not that far removed because our family had to leave. Our families had to leave this country in the worst circumstances. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in our Khmer communities, this is around the world. The Khmer diasporas in Australia, in France, in the US, in Canada, the situation is the same. We are still in survival mode. And that is why even though, if we're lucky enough to be a generation of educated um, you know, Khmer, then we have the ability to step back and see the, the, the impact our education has. But when you grow up in an environment and if you're still struggling because your family's just trying to survive, you, you also might end up in another country and not be able to even have your children educated or be as educated yourself. So, so coming back and seeing the reality of the situation which still perpetuates itself in Cambodia, it really allowed me to think, wow, we are so lucky to be a generation who are educated and who can come back. And even if you know people just volunteer their time or their money or honestly just being interested to come back to Cambodia and you know you can visit or you can just read about what's going on but have an interest in knowing about your roots to me that's just the starting point it doesn't mean you need to quit your life like I did and and come here everyone can make a difference and I think if collectively we build awareness then that is how we start to change the dialogue and start to change the perception because Unfortunately, a lot of people still believe that Cambodia is still like what it was during the regime. And there's so much trauma attached to the memory of Cambodia that a lot of the older generation can never come back. So for us, if we approach it with curiosity and compassion, then I think we can learn a lot about our culture and our people. I haven't had the chance to go to Srokmai. I do want to go someday in Melissa and Matt always tell me, like, when you go and visit, it's not a vacation vacation, you know, like, you can go to the city, but when we go visit our family, it's not like what you would picture about, you know, going to a foreign country or going to a country and experiencing, like, 
like a lavish lifestyle. Like if you're trying to think about how the locals are living, it's not pretty. And I want to see that for myself someday. And it, it is kind of like we left those people behind. We left our people behind. And I'm glad that you you have been able to have the opportunity to go back and live there and see how things are like. Because we can see things on the news, but there's nothing like being in there and actually living there day to day. And I really commend you for that. That's something that we can't all do. And I'm glad that we've connected with you and we can learn from your experiences. And now that we have our degrees, we're working, um, we want to find ways that we can give back and connect with our roots. So we'll definitely keep in touch about like what else we can do to support each other. And maybe in the future we can meet if <laughs> we end up in the same place. And we are like that small percentage of people, you know, of Cambodians who are educated and, you know, are highly successful in like our, where we are at now with our careers, with our journeys. So yeah, I think now it's time to give back and hopefully right. that changes in the future. Oh, Penny, also thanks for bringing up that it's never too late to learn your native language. I think it's easy to feel ashamed for not practicing when you were younger, but me and Melissa, we're trying to bring that back through this Khmerican Sisters project. And I've been wanting to call Yay more. So I called her today before this episode and I've always felt really ashamed of my accent as well and just not having the vocabulary ready in my head. But I think the more that we practice, the more that we show interest, the better we'll get. So thank you for bringing that up for our listeners because I know a lot of us Khmericans give up. Like we just say, oh, we can't speak it. We just understand. But yeah. thank you for pushing yourself and you're encouraging us to do the same too. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I just want to say that that is exactly right. If I can do it for someone who's never spoken a word of Khmer, definitely everyone else can do it. It's whether you're interested enough to pick it up. I'm not saying you have to do the hours that I'm doing, but just to speak more. And, and make jokes. Worry. Yeah, make jokes, <laughs> you know, but also we're our own little community. We can all speak broken Khmer English to that's each other, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that's incredible because we'll actually understand each other. So there's a community out there that yeah. are ready willing to have conversations in broken Khmer and make jokes that only we will understand. <laughs> well, That's so true. Penny, we have enjoyed talking with you so much and I, I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours. We're curious to know what does being Cambodian-Australian, Kamazi, as you <laughs> coined, mm -hmm. um, how does being Cambodian-Australian, Kamazi mean to you? So I think before I would have just said that I was Australian but I happen to come from a Cambodian background. Now, since living here, I would say that I am proudly a Cambodian Australian and I am uniquely of two backgrounds. I was born and raised in Australia and I'm very Western in my outlook, the way that I speak, how I think and feel. Um, but I also love and appreciate the culture and the customs from my Khmer side. And that's the love of community and the, the, the need for community, the love of Cambodian food, which coming back here has really reignited my love oh, my food, my and that's not something I ever liked growing up. Um, and then also all of the creativity, the arts and the culture that exists here within our community is incredible to see, and it stirs something in me, which I, which I love. And now being able to speak the language and understand people and understand the culture better 
has been an incredible journey for me. So I would say that I'm now more probably Khmer, a lot more than I ever have been in the past. It was just a word to me. I am yeah. Cambodian, I have black hair, I am Asian, but what does that actually mean? Not a lot. So to me now, it really means that I am of two worlds and I am uniquely of two worlds. And for all of us who are Khmer something, we are all the same. We are all uniquely of two worlds. And it doesn't matter whether you're more Khmer or you're more American or more Australian or whatever, we are what we are. And if we embrace that and accept that and understand that about our fellow Khmer, whatever background they are, mm -hmm. then I think that we will have a lot of compassion and understanding and interest amongst each other. So for the longest time when I was embarrassed, uh, it was hard because I just didn't know what to say. I didn't know about the Khmer Rouge regime. I didn't really know what people were talking about. And a lot of people I, a lot of people I thought were much more Khmer than me having two Khmer parents, parents and also meeting their grandparents. And I've never met my grandparents. So um, that's why. So I would say uh, it's a great thing to be so uniquely of these two worlds. That's great that you've been able to connect with that part of you. And I'm sure that makes you feel so fulfilled. And I hope that your mom and your family are proud of you too, to ignite that side of you again. And I agree. I'm glad that we can have social media where we can connect with all of these Americans or Kamazis and everybody around the world. So I hope that we can meet in person someday and connect. I would love that. And please let me know if you're both ever coming to Cambodia because there's a lot of stuff that I would love to show the two of you. Well, Penny, it was an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast today. Just through our conversation, I've learned so much about strength and resilience and just getting yourself out of your comfort zone. And that allows you to live a more fulfilling life. And you are doing so many good things in this world. And I'm excited to see where you'll be next. And for now, we want to say thank you for the work that you're doing to help impoverished children and families and just sacrificing your life to live in a new place and to give back to these communities. And that tells me how big of a heart that you have to go back after your experiences. So that's just so beautiful, Penny. And I'm glad that you followed your heart back to Cambodia. Yeah, and I totally agree with Jasmine. And thank you for everything that you shared today, like from your your journey within your career, education, like struggles and challenges um, that you had to deal with growing up and just opening up and being vulnerable about yeah. those stories. It's really inspiring. And we'd love to stay connected with you and help promote CCF. Thank you so much. And, and please do, please stay connected. Thank you so much for yeah, having me. It's really been an honor. It's really been an honor. So um, I look forward to the day that we meet in person. And please keep going with this podcast. I love listening to the episodes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely love feedback. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Let us know what you've learned from this episode. Share your thoughts with us. And be sure to check out Penny's feature on her website at twocamericansisters.com. She also has an article on cambodianchildrensfund.org. So be sure to check that out. And please take a couple of minutes to give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye. Bye.